welcome to New Planet, a podcast where we inform and enable a sustainable lifestyle. Hey Aiden, how's it going man? What's up Xander? So, uh, plant agriculture. Yeah, plant agriculture. Let's get into it. All right, let's do our quote. Um, Our recently discovered quote is by Rachel Carson, who is the author of Silent Spring, which we mentioned that a few episodes back, one of the uh, more important agricultural um, environmental books about pesticide pollution. Um, and so the quote is, but man is a part of nature and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself. And there we have Something it. to think about for sure. Yeah. I like that. Very introspective. I agree. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about the role that plants play in the global diet, more specifically the American diet, because Aiden and I are American. So it's a lot easier to talk about ourselves. We're also going to cover the global crop production and if that is sustainable and then talk about ways that it can be more sustainable. So, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. uh, Let's just, I mean, kind of like the previous episode, there's going to be a lot of statistics because it does help us kind of understand, you know, the, the climate that we're in here when it comes to agriculture and how much food we consume and whatnot so um and we're going to be using another one of the websites that we used from the last episode which is our world and data which is a really useful website for so many different subjects i love it i like visual stuff so i like being able to look at the graphs and kind of just see where we stand on different types of like consumption and use of different resources it's pretty awesome yeah, definitely check out the website. It's fun to just click around and look at all the graphs and see all the colors. Yeah, you could get lost in that for sure. Um, so one of their graphs is, uh, so or one of their pages, I should say, is food consumption patterns in the, in the U.S., I guess, here. Yeah, and it divides it up by um, a couple different characteristics. So one of them is by macronutrient, and it shows how many... Uh, daily calories are supplied from different macronutrients, so carbohydrates, proteins, and fat. So you will not be surprised to know that in the U.S., the vast majority of our diet is comprised of carbohydrates and fat. Um, Yay! Yeah, more more than 1,500 calories per day come from carbs, and then let's see what fat is. Fats, oh, I guess, oh, there we go. Almost 1,500 also come from fats. Um, and then the rest is animal protein and pro- plant protein. And animal proteins are 279 in 2013. 279 calories came from animal protein and then 159 from plant protein. So plant protein makes up a very small <laughs> proportion of our diet compared to fats, carbs, and even animal proteins. So, um, if you then divide that up into different characteristics, which are then by food groups, 
Um, honestly, not that, not any more reassuring <laughs> if the other stat was any, uh, it was reassuring in any way. Um, if you look at it all, the major subdivisions are sugar, oils and fats, meat, dairy and eggs, and cereals and grains. And then you got a few little lines that are veggies, fruits, starchy roots, and pulses, which I learned is a name for lentils and beans. I didn't actually know that. Um, it was actually like not an insignificant line for alcoholic beverages, too. In fact, what is it there? Is it actually more than... Um, pulses? Well, let's see. Alcoholic beverages make up, on average, 159 calories per day. Which is almost as much as fruits and vegetables. <laughs> uh. I mean, cider is alcohol and fruit, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> so yeah, it's needless to say, oh, well, I guess I never really actually discussed what those uh, sections make up, but oils and fats are the biggest section. And then followed by cereals and grains, sugars, meat, dairy, and eggs. Fruits and vegetables make up a pretty small portion of, of our daily uh, diets. And also, the entire like caloric value of our daily diet is much bigger than it was. Because these stats all started in 1961, and they were below 3,000, and they've grown up above 3,500 calories per day now, which is way too much. Unless you're like a very active athlete. I don't think you actually need that many calories. Yeah. Especially with the sedative lifestyle that is like driving in your car to your office job where you, yeah. most people just sit. Yeah. And like a lot, cause given that a lot of those calories come from oils and fats, those are all mostly avoidable. Like we don't need sugar. We don't need oils and fats really. So, well, we don't need oils. We need fat. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're focusing on vegetables and crops, obviously, in this episode. So, um, like we said, they make up a tiny portion of our diets, which is kind of sad to see. Um, from this website, it shows that 2% of global calories in 2009 came from vegetables. And given that like vegetables don't actually have that much caloric value to begin with, but like that's nothing. Um, and then I guess if you're looking at it by global food supply, like by weight, it was 11.5%, um, which is a fair amount. So it shows that it's not like an insignificant amount of actual existing food. It's just that the caloric value isn't super high. Um, but in China, it actually skyrocketed the the food supply by weight of vegetables and that I guess results from them emerging from like the Great Leap Forward and from Mao's rule over China mostly um, so they had about 13% of their food weight from vegetables in 1970 and then it went up to 39% in 2009 so that um, changed from a per capita consumption of 124 grams of vegetables to 881 grams of vegetables per day, which is, like, huge. So, um, it's interesting to think about that and, like, think about if we're headed in the right direction, I guess, for 
vegetable and meat consumption and whatnot, because when we talked about meat consumption in the last episode, it seemed that we're kind of headed in the wrong direction because all signs pointed to us consuming more meat now and in the future. And I don't know. It, I feel like we need to eat more vegetables. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think vegetable consumption is important, but we also have to keep in mind the, the habits that people have when it comes to eating meats right now. And maybe the solution while eating more vegetables is necessary. I think looking into replacements for meat is a viable solution like these Beyond Burgers or, you know, other sources of protein that taste similar to meat. Yeah. Or the, like, have the same position in the American diet that meat currently does. Yeah. And it's also just, like, replacing... Yeah, it's replacing other things, too. Like, like I just said, and we just saw those stats about oils and fats and the sugars, they make up mm-hmm. a very significant portion of our diets. And that can easily be replaced by vegetables, by like lentils or beans or like rice too. Yeah, and even I mean, healthy. Do you remember the the food pyramid from growing up? Oh man, because I'm pretty sure the the top of that is about red meat and oils yeah. and how you should minimize consumption of that. And yet, it seems to be the the staple. Yeah, the the base of the diet, even though it should be more like grains and vegetables. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more soon about um, specific type of oil, I guess. Um, But yeah, we can talk about the sustainability of crop production and see kind of how that compares with what we talked about last week uh, or a few weeks ago. Um, So land use is one of the key points when it comes to any type of like agriculture, whether it's animal or plant agriculture. Um, So 71% of the earth land is habitable and of that 71%, 50% is used for agriculture, which is freaking crazy. Wow. Because, let me see if I can find that map. Um, so essentially half of Earth's habitable land is used for agriculture and isn't even used for habitat? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And most of that is grazing land, which we talked about on the last episode as well, like the grazing land that we yeah. use for cows and everything is crazy amount of land. Um, so there's this really good map. I think this is my favorite data and like visualized data from all of the Our World and Data ma- uh, website. It's the how the world's land is used and it's divided up by like a, a map of the earth. So you see all the continents in front of you and then color coded is like how these different areas of land are used. And so all of North and South America is livestock. Meat and dairy production and grazing and feed crops take up, if you were to concentrate them all into one area, all of Canada, the United States, Central America, and South America. 27% of habitable land is um, livestock. Freaking crazy. That's insane. Just to look at the map and see, yeah, all, like the entire Americas, right, used for livestock. It's kind of crazy to imagine all Except that. Except for Greenland, distributed. Yeah, Greenland is glaciers. <laughs> Literally, that's all Greenland is right now. Ten percent. Um, and then, oh yeah, you got Antarctica too. 
Oh, oof, can't forget that. <laughs> um, All the penguins. <laughs> and then uh, cropland. Cropland is 7%. And it basically includes China, Japan, um, and Southeast Asia, so like Myanmar and Vietnam. And, that, and Laos. Yeah. The Philippines. And that's... Uh, Malaysia. That's crop minus... Sorry, crops minus land for animal feed. And so you see like the, the imbalance there of the amount of land we use for just producing crops and the amount of land we use for raising livestock and cre- growing the food that they need to consume as well. So I think what's also pretty profound is the the fresh water is just Mongolia. Oh man. So all of the cropland and the livestock and you know even us in the urban area are reliant on fresh water which is one percent of the earth and is just mongolia yeah whoa that's crazy it, it makes you wonder like how that even lasted us this long like when you well think, we haven't even gotten into water use yeah yet, exactly and, uh, when you talk about the water get ready use. people um <laughs> Yeah, I guess another number for land use, yeah, 1.59 billion hectares in 2016 was used for cropland. Um, the good news is our crop yields are increasing, so we can produce more crops with less land. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. talking about water, uh, <laughs> we use 70% of fresh water withdrawals in uh, the entire world for agriculture. So that doesn't just mean crops, that includes animal agriculture as well, but Regardless, 70% of all fresh water is used for agriculture. And yeah, so I guess I got some other stats from outside of the U.S., which I think is always important because U.S. exceptionalism is a dangerous concept. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And uh, the, U- the EU has a food policy report, is what I learned. And uh, in this report, they talked about... Um, essentially policy reform and the realignment that they need to have more sustainable food systems within Europe. And they gave some statistics about like why it's needed. So some key ones were how Europe loses 970 million tons of soil every year due to erosion, which is obviously partially due to poor agricultural techniques. Um, The use of pesticides and nitrogen um, are causing horrible impacts on insect and plant life and leading to biodiversity loss, which if you're maybe not sure why biodiversity is so important or why insects are so important, um, you can look at the fact that 75% of global food crops rely on animal pollination and that uh, 50% of the production of plant-derived sources of vitamin A are completely dependent on pollination. So, you know, sometimes you don't realize how one small like insect or food source can really affect the local or even global environment and biodiversity but you know it's all interconnected and well here's a here's a fun fact about bees and bee pollination uh for almonds one bee can pollinate about a thousand flowers per day which is a thousand almonds so if we lose the bees, we lose the almonds. And uh, no I almond love almond milk. milk. 
or just regular old almonds or any other delicious almond products. But still, like, one bee is a thousand almonds per day by the pollination. And just doing that manually sounds insane slash nearly impossible. So we really need... yeah biodiversity and insects like the entire ecosystem is so essential for the well-being of the soil and the food that we produce yeah of course um so i said we'd get back to talking about oil and now we're gonna do it we're gonna talk about palm oil because i think that's a very problematic uh crop that needs needs to be addressed and it has been addressed to a certain degree globally. I think a lot of people are aware to some degree of like, oh, palm oil causes deforestation and whatnot, but kind of the extent to how much palm oil is in your food and the extent to which it actually is causing um, deforestation is kind of unknown, or at least not people are not informed enough about it. So um, with palm oil, you get like the destruction of, of habitats because you need to... Um, especially in like East Asia, you need to uh, completely demolish pristine and like old growth forests, and then replace them with monocultures of palm of palm plants. Um, and I was actually just watching the. Have you seen the Our Planet series on Netflix with David Attenborough? Oh, is that the Netflix original? Yeah, I maybe. I don't know. It's like the more recent kind of um, Planet Earth, but it's our planet instead. It's really good. No, I haven't seen it. Well, but one of the episodes. I do enjoy Planet Earth. Yeah, no, it's always nice, and he, you know, his voice is very soothing. So, <laughs> um, it's just because he has an accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, he one of the episodes is about forests and talks about. And shows you evidence of the destru- destruction of, of rainforests um, due to palm oil cultivation. And it's Do they show anything with like orangutans or they show, great apes? They show orangutans and they like explain why um, palm oil is causing their population to decline steadily. Um, but oh, it, it also showed just like the difference between the like old pristine forests and then what happens when you replace it with palm oil and it's just sad because there's so much biodiversity in the forest and then suddenly there's just lines and lines of trees the same tree and there's nothing like just just palm trees palm oil trees and it's really sad to see that um and just imagine like the thousands of years that led to the creation I mean, thousands, probably more than thousands, hundreds of thousands of years have led to the creation of those forests, um, just to be like yeah, destroyed. Yeah, I was recently listening to a, I was recently listening to a podcast by a mycologist, which is a person who studies fungi, and he was talking about how these old growth forests essentially are have been developed by fungi over millions of years, and how we're even descendants of fungi. Like we're more closely related to mushrooms than we are to plants like we have a common ancestor which is pretty insane but just the fact that 30 percent of soil is made up of mycelium which is the structure made up like is is what fungi are made up of so just in old growth forests there is one third of soil made up of fungi and when you 
get rid of these old growth forests and just have monoculture, you really get rid of that biodiversity and all those nutrients that are in the soil from the fungi over extensive periods of time. So yeah, I don't know. Definitely listen to your mycologist because <laughs> the relationships that fungi have in our world is it has blown my mind. <laughs> um and yeah, so you know, if you if you eat products or use products with palm oil in them and if they're not um registered as a sustainable palm oil, what is it? The RSPO label, which is like certified sustainable palm oil production. Um, Where only 2% of it is actually grown sustainably. Only, yeah, only 2% of palm oil is grown sustainably, yeah, that or sold sustainably, I guess, which is really yeah. sad because, like, it's, I have, I was never super um, conscious about palm oil consumption or whatnot. I kind of just bought my food, but until now recently, I just, I always look at the label now when I'm buying things mm-hmm. because it's just such an unnecessary ingredient to so many things. I mean, cheese that's have palm oil. Yeah, well, you wrote down some things here: lipstick, pizza dough, instant noodles, shampoo, ice cream, detergent, margarine, chocolate cookies, biodiesel soap, and packaged bread. And the list goes way on and on. <laughs> um, right, and be mindful too because these labels aren't just going to explicitly say palm oil. You might have to look for things like palm kernel, palm fruit oil, palmite, palmate, palmitate. Uh, a lot of nice sciencey names steric acid yeah just uh anything that looks suspicious give it a quick google search yeah and um yeah palm oil like the production of palm oil and the consequences of it are completely contributing to uh, climate change as well and global warming because the forest that you're destroying to plant these uh, palm plantations um they sequester a lot of carbon and when you destroy those forests you're releasing carbon into the air as well as reducing the capacity for carbon sequestration and completely reducing the size of carbon sinks that we so desperately need right now um and i also made sure to look up who the biggest importers of palm oil were and that was china india and the eu so those areas um are the ones that specifically need to reduce their demand for for palm oil. Um, Well, it's also important to keep in mind that we get most of our products from those places, so I think in America we are equally accountable. Yeah, I guess it depends where you get your sticks from, because um, I don't know if they include, like, for example, uh, carbon emissions in China, for example, that... They're produced in China, but they are produced because of American companies outsourcing like our business to China, and then it's technically like our carbon emissions. I don't know if that's the same mm-hmm. with like the importation of palm oil to China, who then sell their products to. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's interesting. If if we had a sort of GDP like system, but instead of uh, accounting for production, we accounted for like carbon emissions. Yeah, that would just be an interesting to system statistic to see yeah and hey you should vote for andrew yang he wants to redefine gdp (laughs) hey hey whoa whoa. let's not get too political but uh, (laughs) yang gang for sure um so yeah it kind of begs the question of why is palm oil so popular and it's kind of a simple answer it's because it's 
cheaper. You get a higher yield for a lower price when you compare it to other oil types. It's also produced mostly in countries where you can exploit cheap labor, like palm oil production is uh, very it's driven by poverty essentially because people that don't have a lot of money are able to make a good amount of money from shelling palm oil because of the huge demand that that there is on it um it's like how do you change that i don't know i mean personally you can eat less products like be careful of what you're purchasing look at the ingredients make sure there's no palm oil in it Mm -hmm. um you can push your government to you know maybe subsidize other oils that are healthier for the environment and healthier for you um I don't know, put a tax on palm oil. There are things that can be done, but um, right, just not. But just not for starters, vote with your dollars and yeah. read the ingredients list. I know it's an extra step, but once you start doing it, you'll know what products to avoid. And so yeah, it'll be a little bit of work at the beginning, but then you get to the point where you know not to buy stuff because it has palm oil. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's very important to just note that while crops are generally more sustainable than than animal uh, products are there are some big exceptions and palm oil is one of them um just because it's not meat does not mean it's necessarily like better for the environment at all um and so how do we make these things more sustainable i think we'll start with hydroponics something that xander uh has become sort of an expert on recently oh wow (laughs) i'm honored um yeah so Hydroponics are a more viable solution for sustainable agriculture. Um, There was a study that I read recently published on NCBI where a greenhouse in Arizona grew hydroponically and then they also compared that to traditional crops grown in the same area. And so the yield for the hydroponics were about 11 times more efficient than the traditional method. So... Initially, hydroponics for the same area are over 10 times more efficient, which is incredible. And then another important thing to know is the water use for traditional farming uh, compared to hydroponics. So hydroponics use around 13 times less water, which is very profound. So it's more efficient, uses significantly less water. But the big asterisk... Let me ask you, like, why does... um, why does it use so much less water? Well, with hydroponics, you just are recirculating the water and allowing for the plants to get it in a more efficient way instead of just continuously dumping it into the ground and then waiting for it to evaporate into clouds or other ways. Yeah. You're kind of controlling the water flow and really changing the way that your plants are getting water. Hydroponics, if you don't know, is when you grow without soil so you're growing in a nutrient solution and there are various different aspects for growing hydroponically in this study specifically they use nutrient film technique which is where you essentially just have a centimeter or two of nutrient solution at the bottom of a tube and then you have cups with plants in the cups that have the roots hanging down into the nutrient solution and you can monitor the Uh, different elements inside of the solution depending on the plants that you're growing so you can more efficiently use land because you can grow more vertically because with traditional methods you essentially just have a square of dirt and you can only grow there but with hydroponics you can stack it up and then you use water more efficiently because you're not reliant on the 
uh, ecosystem to take the water out of the soil and bring it back through clouds or you're just continuously irrigating with water. And then uh, the big asterisk though for hydroponics is it is around 82 times less efficient when it comes to energy. You just use 82 times more energy. And uh, this study was conducted in Arizona where it's very hot. So a greenhouse needs a lot of climate control systems to regulate the temperature for the plants that you're growing inside of there. So that's something to keep in mind. But uh, because it's more efficient when it comes to water use and yield, if you can get your energy from a green source like solar panels or wind or geothermal or even hydro, that's a way to offset your impact. So it uses yeah. more energy, but if there is a way to, you know, harness your energy from the sun, store it in batteries, and kind of create this closed system when it comes to growing hydroponically, I believe. And studies have shown that hydroponics are a lot better for the environment and more sustainable in the long run. Yeah. So that's my hydroponic soapbox. I will now uh, get off. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Yeah, it was an interesting article. Um, I know they said that yeah, it definitely depended on the location of the greenhouse when it came to energy efficiency. Like, that can change based on location. In some places, you might not even need to use any energy because um, you don't have to regulate the temperature depending on what it's like outside. Um, and then there's also, like, the price aspect of it. It said that, um, let's see here, that you could uh, support, like, the government or grassroots support could, um, like, invest or subsidize the infrastructure for hydroponics because they have like a high uh, initial cost um, yeah that's but true. i think honestly like it, they use so much less water at barely any land it seems like it's the future of agriculture um if we want to live more sustainably so i think it's i think it's promising yeah i agree and i think another system to consider is aquaponics which is essentially hydroponics but you incorporate fish typically tilapia and these fish produce the nutrients that the plants need so you wow. but it's it's harder to regulate the the specific nutrients because you're very dependent on the fish to produce like nitrogen phosphorus and potassium so damn i've never uh, even it, heard but of it's, that <laughs> yeah it's it's really cool but it takes more space because you need a big tank for the fish and then yeah. it's a little more complicated with water use but it's still really cool. You can incorporate fish and then, you know, ever so often you just put some new fish in there, take out the old ones, have a nice tilapia and vegetable dinner and uh, you're good to go. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the more feasible and just kind of, I don't know. It seems like an easier way for us to change to a more sustainable agriculture because it kind of at least in the U.S. and with our mindset, it's like, oh, new technology, um, like entrepreneurs, like let's get the best out of our technological entrepreneurial abilities in the U.S. Um, compared to like regulating current agriculture, which is like forcing farmers to, um, you know, act certain ways and produce food, food in certain ways. We're America. Like a lot of people don't like regulation and government intervention. So I would say hydroponics are maybe one of our best bets here, but um, there are other agriculture techniques that can be incentivized or regulated. Um, so I did a little bit of research on that. So like reducing the use of chemicals and fertilizers on monocrops um, 
is a good start because it has detrimental effects on the environments, like we talked about earlier, loss of biodiversity. Um, and then there are just like basic agricultural techniques like crop rotation and diversity. So um, not growing up, literally not putting all of your eggs in one basket, like growing multiple crops in one area because it allows for like better soil, um, pest control. Right, because um, some plants use different concentrations of nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium, which are kind of the big three nutrients when it comes to growing. So things like radishes put more nitrogen into the soil, and you want to rotate a plant, a plant into that plot that uses more nitrogen, and you kind of have mm. this rotation where you allow the soil to recover. You use plants that put more or less of a, a specific macronutrient in there, and then the next cycle you have a plant that kind of does the opposite, and you're really kind of creating this balance, but it's still keeping in mind the macronutrients. So, And then another technique would be uh, reducing the amount of tilling that people uh, perform on their cropland or just eliminating it completely because that's one of the biggest causes of soil loss. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure that also re reduces a lot of CO2 uh, into the atmosphere by just like upturning the soil and you're releasing all of the stuff underneath. Um, I think that's not a very healthy practice for agriculture. Um, and another interesting way is using cover crops. So like in the off season when you're not growing anything, and if you don't have crop rotation, for example, then the soil can be left bare and kind of lose its nutrients and become very unhealthy. Um, and so by planting a cover crop in the off season, you keep the soil healthy, retains the nutrients in the soil, and you also keep weeds in check, which means you don't have to use as many herbicides, which is nice. Um, and then... One last uh, technique that I had written down was uh, agroforestry, which is interesting and something that I actually participated in. Um, so agroforestry is growing trees or shrubs um, with your crops so that you can increase your biodiversity as it houses like more um, little critters and insects. And then it also reduces erosion through the use of the roots of those shrubs and trees. Um, so... When I was in Washington, I did an internship with NC, the Nooksack Salmon Enhancement Association. Um, and so essentially what I did with them was lead volunteer groups out into riparian zones, which are the kind of the boundary between um, like land and streams. So it's like the, the banks of rivers and whatnot and a little bit before that. And so um, those riparian zones need to be protected by trees and shrubs because it, for example, prevents erosion, and it also prevents um, agricultural runoff from entering the streams because the healthy soil and the roots of those, um, those plants prevent the uh, pesticides, herbicides, or other like f uh, fertilizers, for example, from entering the stream, which in turn protects the stream and the fish in the, and other organisms in the stream from um, the pollution. So that's an example of... Uh, agroforestry um that's really cool yeah it's a really good practice um and then you watched a movie that also talked about sustainable agriculture so tell us a little bit about oh, that oh yeah what was that called it was called uh the biggest the, little farm the biggest tiny huge farm <laughs> something like that no no it was actually called the biggest little farm and it's about this guy named john chester and his wife molly chester who worked to develop a sustainable farm on 200 acres outside of L.A. 
And the, the big goal of their farm was to really develop in tandem with the natural ecosystem. So, you know, each thing they planted, they made sure to have some sort of way to balance that with the natural ecosystems over time you know they had a coyote problem and initially they like trying to they would shoot the coyotes because you know they were hurting their crops or killing their animals but there's other pests that the coyotes also hunt like gophers and just kind of trying to find this way to really be in in balance with nature and i think one of my favorite examples was they had ducks on this little pond because they built this reservoir and then they were growing fruit trees and they were having a really big snail problem. And they kept going out and picking the snails off of the trees and putting them in buckets and discarding them. And then it got so bad and the, the pond was having problems so the ducks didn't have any food in the pond. And so they're like, oh, geez, we have all these snails. Like, that's a big problem. The ducks don't have any food. What are we going to do? So they brought the ducks over and showed them the snails on the trees and the ducks were... <laughs> Just, just snacking down like crazy, and I didn't even know that ducks <laughs> ate snails, but it kind of showed that this balance can really exist, and over time, like, they brought owls in, and they were able to just really work in tandem with their natural ecosystem, so initially the farm had terrible soil, it was super infertile, and by the end of it, they had this beautiful soil that grew delicious plants that was in tandem with nature, so... Honestly, highly recommended. Check out the biggest little farm. Maybe have some Kleenex nearby. There are dogs. <laughs> I don't know. I watched it on the airplane. It was weird. Anyways, check it out. <laughs> um, yeah, well, there, there you go. Um, I guess the bottom line is that if we want to have food security and water security for the globe, and, you know, it's... For specific areas, it'll be a bigger problem than other areas. Um, but in general, food security and water security requires us to really change and reform our agricultural techniques. Um, and that means like policies need to change. Um, I'm not a huge fan of you know waiting for new technology to bail us out of everything, but I do think that hydroponics is a good option for um, reaching a more sustainable uh, kind of end game for agriculture. I think it's, I think it's one of our best options. Um, so yeah. And so we'll end it with some suggested actions. Hopefully you learned some, some good stuff about, I don't know, the sustainability aspect of, of crops and, and vegetables and fruits. Um, but land use, water use. Yeah. Um, our suggested action would just to be eat more vegetables, but, um, eat more crops in general, but yeah, mostly vegetables, pulses, very good, uh, clearly not eaten enough as we learned. And they also don't even use a lot of land. Um, but like beans and lentils are a source of protein, good source of protein, don't use a lot of land and they're very, uh, nutritional. Delicious. <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. 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 Nutritional <laughs> and delicious. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan. But yeah, just, um, cut down on, on meat consumption maybe increase your crop vegetables fruit uh, consumption but also be aware of what you're eating when it comes to like oils because you know oils come from uh, t from crops they come from palm uh, plantations and that's very what about olive oil man 
I don't actually know that much about all of um, production. Well, check out our episode in the future where we talk about olives. <laughs> Just olives. Because I love um, olive oil. Like, I use olive oil a lot, but... Like, is it good? You know, we can talk about coconut oil, too. I don't know. That's yeah. interesting. Have an episode also, on oil. crude oil. We could just do all the oils, dude. <laughs> definitely don't. Definitely don't eat any crude oil. Yeah, please I don't. Recommend that. Yeah. Thanks for listening to our show on plant agriculture. We hope you enjoyed it. Check out our Instagram at New Planet, and feel free to send us an email at newplanetpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, as always, I'm Aiden Hirsch. And I'm Xander Kip. See you next time. Bye.